Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. And we follow a Savior who is crucified by the world, so we should expect opposition. And not when we see opposition, we should not be surprised by it and think, oh my gosh, what in the world? Everything's out of control. No, 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 no. Lord says to expect it. Expect opposition. But second, this passage also sets our hope. See, we as Christians should be able to look at the opposition of the world, at the injustice of the world, and not flinch, and not fear, and not run, because we have a sure and steadfast hope in the midst of it. Hope in God, oh my soul, He is strong and He is strong to save. Hope in God, He's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. There's no question that there are unjust actions occurring in our world. There are wrong things being done on the personal level, as well as the corporate and even international level all the time. Part of the story in the book of Esther deals with a threat that Israel faced from a man who was a member of a tribe that was hostile to Israel. Pastor Ricky will be teaching on this and showing how man's rebellion against God allowed injustice to enter the world, and how God saves the day for the Jews. Now let's join Pastor Ricky again for part two of his message, When Injustice Reigns. Haman points out the cardinal sin, as it were, of the Jewish people, that they will not be assimilated into the kingdom. See, Persia was happy to tolerate all kinds of people as long as they would assimilate to some degree into the Persian way of life. Now, the irony, though, is as we saw in the last chapter, Mordecai and Esther are more than happy to assimilate. And so ironically, Haman is charging them with the thing that God's people should have been doing, but were not actually doing. Which is funny, because sometimes we think, well, if maybe if I disobey, then like I won't receive any opposition. That's not what happened here. They tried to escape opposition by disobeying, and yet they're still being charged with what God's people were supposed to do. And we learn probably why Haman is advanced so quickly and why he wields so much influence is that he is incredibly wealthy. The amount that he offers would be probably half of what the king would take in all year, in all of Persia. This is not like, okay, bring in a briefcase. This is not like bring in a wheelbarrow. This is like, let's bring in some semi-trucks of silver. Where do you want this dropped off? This is an immense sum. And Haman probably actually was thinking partially he was gonna get this, as we'll see later, by getting it from the Jews themselves after he killed them. So this king who had power over every single person's life in the kingdom, what does he do? Verse 10. The king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. See, this king barely bats an eye. He doesn't ask any other questions. Instead, he sees the amount offered to him, which is essentially a legal bribe. And then he gives his signet ring, the symbol and seal of his royal authority, and then he hands it over to a genocidal maniac. This looks, for all intents and purposes, like God's people are being given over to be ruled by the very embodiment of evil and injustice. We read in the verses 12 through 14 that this decree goes out, and the decree reads like this, to destroy to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. 
What day? The day that Haman rolled his dice to determine. And then I think that verse 15 is just chilling the way this ends. The last sentence says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the decree goes out that, okay, on this day, all crime is legal against the Jews. And in fact, if you kill any of them, you can keep what you kill. You can keep the stuff. This was essentially open season, not on an animal, but on an entire people group. And the entire city and every city, as the word goes out, is thrown into chaos. So what does this mean? This is a strange passage, isn't it? This is not typically where you would open up and think, okay, I can't wait to do my devotions from Esther 3. Can't wait to get a word from the Lord. Let's get in there. And then you're looking for like, okay, Lord, where's the good part? And then you read verse 15 and they sat down to drink and the city was in confusion. And you think, okay, that's not what I was hoping for this morning. My boss is difficult. My life is difficult. This is not what I needed. What are we supposed to do in response? Well, three things. First, this passage sets our expectations. What should we expect in the world around us? The Bible is honest about what to expect in the world around us. And the first thing to expect is that we are to expect injustice. The Bible says that in the beginning, God made everything good and all was perfect and all was just. There was justice. Justice reigned. Creation perfectly reflected God's justice, but... Injustice entered the world when sin entered the world. In fact, a few verses after Adam and Eve's sin, we see the first great injustice of one of their sons killing the other. The first murder occurs just verses later. See, in the Bible, justice is that which aligns with the character of God, meaning that we call good what God calls good, and we call evil what God calls evil. And what sin does is it comes in and perverts things such that we say, oh, this is good, but God calls it evil. In other words, taking another person's wife, according to the Ten Commandments, some cultures might call good, like, oh yeah, whatever. It's free, open season. The Bible calls it evil. Or, in some ways, the Bible commands other things like showing mercy to people or caring for the oppressed. And some cultures would say, that's evil, that's silly, the strong survive. And so sin twists all of our definitions upside down and injustice happens when we move our definition of justice from God's definition to what we would prefer it to be. Injustice then is an affront to God's very character. And injustice is everywhere in our world today because sin is everywhere in our world today. And God is opposed. His character must be opposed on every level to all injustice. There are at least three levels of injustice in this passage and in scripture. The first level of injustice is personal injustice. Haman hates Mordecai in particular. He doesn't just kind of hate the Jews in general. He hates this guy. Sometimes people can be the victims of very personal forms of injustice. Sometimes at the office or in the classroom, your idea gets stolen and someone else takes credit. 
Sometimes a family member treats you horribly and then the rest of the family blames you for causing a conflict. Injustice can be very personal. But second, there can be systemic systemic injustice. So this genocidal plan is condoned by the government. This is not Haman out on his own doing crazy stuff and the king's like, man, we got to stop this guy. No, the king is putting his government seal and authority behind what will be a systemic form of injustice. Sometimes in scripture, the people charged with restraining evil are the ones perpetuating evil. See, in Romans 13, the government is given the power over life to restrain evil. The problem is that there are sinners in the government too, right? (laughs) And therefore, the very people charged by God with restraining evil must also restrain themselves from evil. And because sin corrupts everything. When we form organizations or systems or groups or whatever, there's always the possibility that it will be corrupted by injustice. Sometimes a school board or a company or an organization is unjust. I know we have many teachers in our church, and so you'll remember that there were a number of scandals that broke in one particular of the school districts a number of years ago, where it seems those in power were using their power for their own sake, and it was resulting in children being hurt on various levels. That happens. Scandals come out on various branches of government, on city level, state level, national level. Sometimes injustice can be systemic. Third, Cultural injustice. The whole Persian society receives this order. One of the, I think, really evil things about the way this order is written is it's written that if some people kill some Jews, they will be able to gain from their property and their money. In other words, if you go and kill the Jewish family on your block, you can get their house. If you've always admired that house, if you've always loved that set of silverware that they have, if you've always thought that in that safe there's probably a bunch of gold, the government is condoning, yeah, you can do it. But what's interesting is the government is not the people doing the killing. The government is condoning the killing. And for this to take place, people in the surrounding Persian culture would have to be so unjust as to actually take up arms against their neighbors. So what this reveals is not just, okay, the government's corrupt, they need to be flushed clean or whatever. No, the culture itself, all of Persia, there are aspects of its culture that are across the entire thing shot through with injustice. For them to think that this is somehow okay reveals a lot about the Persian culture. Sometimes great injustices happen against a people group or against a person. Sometimes people are lynched or killed because of their skin color, and our society nods in agreement and looks away. Sometimes people are killed, as in Africa, because of the size of their nose or the shape of their face or because they're from the wrong tribe, and the rest of the society looks away. Injustice is everywhere in our world today. Now, part of The Bible's solution is not going to be unfolded until a bit later, but I think it's important for us to set our expectations of the world around us, that things may be hard. And the presence of injustice does not mean 
that God is not still there or still in control. Otherwise, the Bible would kind of be suppressing this stuff. Like, okay, injustice doesn't happen because God's always in control. No, no, no. The Bible's open about this. And it sets our expectations for this. And it helps us understand why injustice occurs. Because of sin, that injustice entered the world when sin entered the world. And we as Christians should be clear-eyed about looking at our world around us. It sets our expectations to expect injustice, but also, second, briefly, to expect opposition. There's something else behind this injustice. It's not just racism, although it probably is racism. What I think is also behind this is that humanity is in opposition to God and in rebellion against God, and there is resistance to God's people from our world and from dark spiritual forces. Because when God's people do what they're supposed to do, when they actually reflect who God is to the world around them, two things happen. First, the world is drawn in because there's a longing in each person's heart that they were made in the image of God, a longing for God that they cannot totally suppress. And so there's a longing for that, but there's also a sinful opposition to it. There's a thing that if somebody's pointing out your sin or your need for repentance, you're gonna push that away because it's not comfortable. And that happens. The world reacts against the people of God. But second, there are also evil spiritual forces at work too. Ephesians 5 warns us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, it is not wrong to read this decree as satanic or to think that there is not some dark spiritual design behind much of what is happening in the book of Esther. This has been true from the very beginning. From the time of Acts, there's opposition from the Jewish leaders. A little bit later, there's opposition from emperors like Nero, who burn Christians to light their palace at night. Even today, Christians experience serious violence and torture around the world. An average of 180 Christians are killed around the world for their faith every month. In 60 countries, according to the U.S. government, Christians face clear and dangerous persecution, either from their government or from their neighbors. In other words, either systemically or culturally. So what does this mean? Well, it means that we should expect that in the world, big and small forces of opposition will come against the people of God. This is what Jesus meant when he said that we must take up our cross and follow him. That we will be opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we follow a savior who is crucified by the world, so we should expect opposition. And not when we see opposition, we should not be surprised by it and think, oh my gosh, what in the world? Everything's out of control. No, 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 no. Lord says to expect it. Expect opposition. But second, this passage also sets our hope. See, we as Christians should be able to look at the opposition of the world, at the injustice of the world, and not flinch, and not fear, and not run, because we have a sure and steadfast hope in the midst of it. During World War II, in the Jewish concentration camps, the Nazis became concerned about a particular pattern that was occurring among the Jewish prisoners. That in several camps, death camps, the Jewish people were found writing down verses from a number of books of the Bible, but 
especially the book of Esther. And the Nazis hated it. But the Jewish people kept writing and writing. They even secretly celebrated Purim, the festival prescribed at the end of the book of Esther. Why? Why did they do that? Well, because the book of Esther is honest about the fact that injustice is very real in the world around us. But it offers a hope that no Nazi could ever take away. So what is that hope? First, it's unexpected mercy. The Bible holds out unexpected mercy. One of the things that happens when we experience injustice is we're tempted to come to the Bible and say, what are you going to do about this injustice, God? Why don't you judge fairly? Why don't you bring judgment on the world? Why don't you come down, rend the heavens, and come down and bring true and lasting and ultimate justice everywhere? Why are you waiting? Why don't you do this? One of the things that we forget, though, is that there is a reason God's people were in exile. That when we ask for the justice of God, we often find ourselves in the crosshairs of the justice of God as well. A few years ago, I parked downtown and I received a ticket, a parking violation. And what happened was I came downtown and there was a construction zone in front on the street with some of the meters with the little hoods over them, the little, this spots out of use hoods. And then there were like cones and there were further down the street, there was construction. So I pull up, there's one of those kind of meters that's out of service right in front of me. So I walk out and I see, oh, there's a meter right behind me. So I pay the meter behind me. I walk away, come back, and then I have a ticket, not just for expired parking, but for parking in a construction zone, which is more expensive, I guess. I thought this very unfair. I was actually really mad. A general will remember this. I was like so mad. I was like, what in the world? These people, I mean, clearly, I mean, what was I supposed to think? I paid the meter behind me. That was, what was really frustrating because I actually paid the meter behind me, came back to a ticket, realized after I really looked at it, like, okay, this space corresponds to this meter and that space corresponds to that meter. Sorry. Somebody needs a sign. And so I felt like, I felt irate. So I thought, you know what? I'm not going to just pay this ticket. I am going to go downtown and I'm going to speak to a judge. Because I thought this is crazy. It was unfair. It was unjust. So I go down to the judge and the judge, God bless him, in traffic court or whatever, he just looked tired. And he could tell the kind of person I was as soon as I was like making my way down the stairs to the judge right there. And he could just see like, okay, one of these guys. And so... I go and I say, I explain the situation. I say, I got this ticket, but you don't understand. It was very confusing. And I did pay, I even paid one of the meters. And he just kind of heard me out and was like, okay, okay. He said, um, so were you parked in the space that corresponded to the construction zone was there one of those little out-of-service things on that meter that corresponded to your space? Or was it a mistake? Was somebody, did somebody make a mistake with the ticket? And I said, no, it, I mean, I mean, it, if you want to get technical, I guess it did correspond technically to the one in front of it. He said, okay, all right. Did you realize what happened when you got back? Like, did you see, okay, oh, what, this is what happened. This space corresponds to here. This space corresponds to here. And I was like, well, yeah, I saw it afterwards but it was very unclear at the time. And he said, well, 
So, so you did park there, though. At the end of the day, that's the violation. And I said, yes. He said, okay, well, I can't help you. I... <laughs> And then I began to argue more, and then he began to lose some of his patience with me, and I began to sense I was on the precipice. I was beginning to sense on the precipice that I had walked into the courtroom, assured of my rights, and then when I actually stood in front of the judge, it was more or less revealed that I had my own issues to worry about. <laughs> right? And this is a little bit like us when it comes to injustice in the world around us. On a greater more fundamental level, we are very aware of the injustice being done to us by people in the world, but we're often unaware that we ourselves have acted unjustly. And not just once or twice, not just parking in a space that we shouldn't be parking in. In fact, God's people in this passage are where they are because of their own injustice. God's people should have followed God's directions in the beginning when they entered the promised land, which would have defeated this Agagite people, but they didn't. And Mordecai is actually Saul's ancestor. And Saul was the very king who did not do what God told him to do, which resulted in the Agagite people continuing to be the enemies of God. In other words, this is a family problem for Mordecai. And God's people were taken in exile and put in this vulnerable position because of their own sin. And it would have been just, in a sense, for God to simply let them experience the consequences of their sin and rebellion against God. And we know that even in exile, there were many people like Esther and Mordecai who appear to have compromised in big and small ways. And instead, God could say, look, if you're so willing to compromise at every turn to survive in the Persian empire, and you're so determined not to trust me to provide for you and to protect you, then I'm going to let you handle this. I'm going to let you do the thing that you're trying to do, which is take things out of my hands and put them in yours. God's people in this passage, if justice came down, justice would come for them as well. But there's a little detail we miss because we are not Jewish. The people would have received this edict about the destruction of all Jews. The Jewish people would have received this on the eve of the Passover. See, the Passover is that reminder of God's people in Egypt being saved because they put a spotless lamb's blood over their doorpost. In other words, when God comes down to Egypt, God's people are not exempt automatically from that judgment. If God's going to come and bring complete justice to every family in Egypt, his people would receive that justice too because they're still sinners as well. Hope in God, oh my soul, he is strong and he's strong to save. Hope in God, he's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. There's so much more to discover in this God of Chance series, but that's all we have time for on today's edition of Better News Radio. If you'd like to hear today's message again, or if you'd like to find more teachings by Pastor Ricky, visit our website at betternewsradio.com. If you'd like a full-length CD version of today's teaching, you can order one by emailing us at radio at betternewsradio.com. We're so glad that we can bring you God's Word through the ministry of Better News Radio, and we want you to know that we're praying for you always. 
we want to encourage you. If you haven't done so already, find a good Bible teaching church to become a part of. By joining a church, you gain a support group of fellow believers who put God's love into practice and can help you grow in your own relationship with your Creator. You too can contribute in your own unique way as well, and together the body of Christ will reach many with the good news of the gospel. If you're in the El Paso area, we would love to have you come see us in person at Cross of Grace Church. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship God and hear what He has to teach us through His Word. Find out more under the Community tab at betternewsradio.com. If you're not in El Paso, there's also some great resources to help you find a great church in your area. Thanks for listening to Pastor Ricky's message today from the God of Chance series. He'll have more to share next time right here on Better News Radio. Oh, my soul.